You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Oh, folks, what a treat. Uh, today, uh, my guest is Pete Scazzera. I would describe Pete, and Pete's on here right now, so I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I call you the godfather of family systems theory and church life. Really? I first heard Pete, uh, I think it was like 2006 or 2007, and I was listening to Rob Bell's podcast at the time. He was podcasting his sermons, and you were a guest speaker at uh, Mars Hill Church, and I remember you being described as the slowest-paced pastor in the fastest-paced city in the world. And I immediately piqued my interest. I'd been a lead pastor just a couple of years at that point. And you got up and talked about family systems theory. And uh, I was trained in systems theory in the late 90s. And I couldn't believe that there was another person out there. Of course, I think probably all of my listeners know Pete for your emotionally healthy work. Uh, there's all kinds of emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy leadership, all kinds of ways to access that. And then Pete, of course, has um, his own podcast, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it is it's painful and a must listen. Um, in fact, especially during COVID, Pete, I think some of the stuff you're putting out is, boy, just what everyone needs to hear. So welcome to the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Here we are. Thank you, Steve. Great to be with you. Looking forward to this chat. Excellent. Let's get right into... Uh, tell, tell my listeners, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with your story, there's so many great elements of it, uh, You know, especially your wife quitting that one day. Yeah, yeah. Great. But what first got you interested in family systems theory? Pain. Uh, pain in my own family. I mean, I, I knew nothing about family systems theory. Uh, obviously, I went through seminary, with planted a church here in New York City. And... Uh, uh, basically, my life began to uh, my began to crumble. I mean, on a personal level, maritally, um, and then church wise. And I and I just I saw that there was something deeply wrong, big gap in my training because I'm trying to build a healthy community, trying to have a healthy family, but uh, very unaware of how, uh, in a sense, body life theology, which I would call family systems applies to present day life, whether in my own personal family or building a community. So what happened was I ended up, you know, we, Jerry, Jerry did quit the church. My wife came to a place. We had four small girls at the time. And, uh, you know, the church had grown. We were planting churches and, and lots of chaos. Uh, we had a split in one of our congregations that we had planted. And it seemed like we were recycling the same problems over and over. And so Jerry, as a healthier person than myself, quit. And she said, you know, I'm not going to this church anymore. I'm going to another church. Uh, she wasn't leaving me, but she did leave the church. Yes, uh, she had leaving your leadership. <laughs> yeah, she, she differentiated, although we didn't have the term at the time, and that she stayed connected to me. She wasn't leaving the marriage, uh, but she started attending another church. And so we'd done some therapy a little, little bit prior to that. But, uh, you know, I, I was dancing around it. You know, I wasn't seriously in it, but that broke me. You know, that totally got me. She had my full attention at that point. And it was when we went away for a week of intensive, really marital therapy. Not therapy. We went for like, a, a, you know, two therapists and us. And we didn't go there for our marriage. We didn't go there for, I went there to fix Jerry. She went there to fix the church. Uh, but God had another plan. And and we met each other. I think we, 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 we met each other. Like God met us. And we realized, again, family systems theory was not talked about, but 
we God met us in our marriage. And we had been friends for eight years before we got married. We had been married at that point for about seven. And so we had a long friendship, did love each other, but we didn't know how to love each other. And when this guy, one of the therapists, was two, did a little genogram of our family of origins. And very quickly, he did it probably in 15 minutes. He said, let's talk about your parents' marriage, you know, Jerry on your side and your grandparents' marriage and, you know, how they did conflict, how they did differences, et cetera, et cetera. And Pete, let's look at your family of origin, your parents, your grandparents. Then let's look at your marriage. How would you describe your marriage? And was looking, we just side by side on a, on a board. I'll never forget it. It took, really, it took maybe 15 minutes. And we were the first, quote, Christians in our family. So we thought we were big shots. We thought, wow, you know, we know Jesus, we're different. And we looked at that little chart and we realized, oh, underneath our Christian zeal, our marriage is not that different than our parents and grandparents. The way we do feelings, the way we do sadness, the way we do conflict, the way we understand raising kids. I mean, just so many things, gender roles. And it was a shock. It was like a slap in the face. So that was our wake-up call. And then I, I think we had an I-thou experience, you know, Martin Boover. And and then we, God met us in such a way we realized the system of our marriage is going to be what we're going to reproduce in the church. And the most important thing we could do would be to have a healthy marriage and, of course, family, out of which we begin to create a healthy family. And when we made a commitment to not lie to each other anymore— it just naturally bled into the church. because so we said, well, we're living, we're going to bring the new life as a church. So at that point, I didn't know the word family systems theory. I was just like walking this thing out. And so then I began to do some reading on like Ed Friedman and other people and reading like crazy, everything I could find on family systems theory. And it all made sense to me. Um, and as many of you know, Ed Friedman was a rabbi. So he was, he understood congregational dynamics but I saw the value of it, and of course, the biblical basis for it as well. And uh, so that was the beginning of our journey in 1996. But it really came out of our experience first in our marriage. And that's why we still say to this day, you lead out of your marriage. Yeah, I, th- I think one of your statements that I've heard spread around is, uh, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. Yes. 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 Tell us more about that. Yeah. So in other words, when you come to Christ, we come to faith in Christ, we're, we're born again into this new family. That's the good news of the gospel. However, discipleship is that growth process of leaving your family of origin and your culture and learning to be follower of Jesus in his new family. So it's a family system shift. Uh, so I want to take the positive legacies of my family going back three to four generations, but I also want to, and, but I want to, I want to remove, I want to say, once I'm aware of it, I can say no to it. I can, I can now discard certain things. But that is the work of discipleship. So that's hard work. That's called the crucified life. That, that's called dying. And, but there is a resurrection. But that is what discipleship is. So family systems provides a very helpful paradigm and model for being a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. So we've talked about genograms uh, on this podcast a few times. It's, it, it really is one of the cornerstone tools of systems theory yes. for a small group or let's say a group of pastors that are getting together. Yep. How would you advise them to go about sharing a genogram together? Yeah. So let, let me, let, it's a very good question. And uh, I'm going to tell you that there's a, what we do is we provided a free tool on our website at emotionallyhealthy.org slash team and where I will actually, you can lead your team through a genogram. And it's free. You'll see three team uh, transformational videos. 
and just handouts that go with it. So what happened was when I had that experience, let me give you a background here on Genogram because it is a very important tool. Uh, when we had that little experience in that therapist's office in 1996, I began to say, I said, that was powerful. You know, just a little, little sketch. I didn't know what he was doing. Yes. Yeah, I began to research and- Genogram and all that. And then I went and, uh, you know, learned more about it and, and realized, oh, this is the, this is under the umbrella of fan, of therapists. Therapists do this in their office. They're trained to do it. And uh, so when I went and got my, I went and got a doctorate in marriage and family. And the reason I did uh, a doctor of ministry. And the reason I did that was because I wanted to see how to apply the stuff that therapists were learning in a, in a family systems doctoral program. And I wanted to apply it to discipleship and leadership development. That was my goal. And I'd say half the class were folks going to be doctorates and in therapy and the other half of us were like pastors. But I remember saying at that point, I was, I don't know what year it was, end of the nineties, maybe four or five years into this. And I want, I said, I want to bring this genogram thing. I want to figure, I want to bring it to the church. And I remember the professor and some others saying, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, it's too, you're opening up Pandora's box, uh, and people aren't trained and you're not, you know, you're not a therapist either, Pete, you're a pastor. And so Jerry and I, and so, and I understood what they were saying. Uh, so we actually experimented with figuring this out. It took us 17 years to create a way to do genograms in a discipleship setting or a leadership conference setting. So we would do it with 500 people. Uh, we do a thousand pastors in a room, but we sorted out how to how to boundary it, how so that it was limited, but yet we were taking people deep in. So when we actually, you know, we we did a 1.0, we piloted around the world. I was doing I was doing them over and over and over and over and over again, trying to perfect it for a church context, and it was incredibly powerful. And I had people come to me and say, "Do not do this. This is insane what you're doing." And I. But I, I'd done it enough at that point that I knew we had enough guardrails around it. So I wouldn't recommend a person just go and do a genogram. doesn't know what they're doing. I think, you need, I think you need to get some basic training because you're opening people up and you want to do it responsibly uh, and carefully because you're, you're, you're taking them down roads of anything from abuse in their background to yeah. – like, to me, I was completely unaware of my, of my past impact on the present. I – and I had severe abuse in my family of origin, but was had shut it completely out. Uh, I thought it was normal. Uh, uh, so, so when you begin to open people up like that, you've got to have some safety around it. So I even think on, on the videos that we've done, and so we've actually put it into a basic discipleship course. So here we first did it. We said, okay, we can do it live. Hmm. And then the question was, and we had, and we did train some other people to do it, you know. But I said, I said to my wife, I said, we got to figure out how to get this onto a video. So anybody in the world that has access to it. And she, my wife said to me, it's impossible. It's not going to be done. It's just, it's just that that's that's way out there, Pete. So that took a few years too, just so you know. That took, and so when I we actually, it's now part of what we call the emotionally healthy discipleship course. Yeah, and uh, it's for anybody in the church. And and so I remember when we were going to. When Zondervan was publishing it, I said, I want to charge $499 for this. And they, they laughed. I said, a church, you're lucky they paid $39.99 for the whole course, yeah, everything. Right. And I said, they have no idea what this is worth. You'd, you'd be in therapy for a year for this. And 
so actually the emotionality relationships course, which is part two of the discipleship course, was we spent 19 years on these skills, different skills. Genogram's one of them. But they're so revolutionary because they put feet on discipleship. They 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 cause the, to me theology to be lived out practically. That's the power of it. So uh, this genogram thing, I, I it's just it's it's the core. It's a core tool for us to to help people become aware of how their past has impacted their present. Yeah, and I think I think that's the the beauty of it is it, it's helping. Like everyone likes to generally talk about themselves and their family, so even if you have trauma or abuse in your background, yeah. I have found, because we've done hundreds of genograms at our church, I've I found people generally enjoy talking about it. It's, it's a matter of the facilitator creating a safe space. So yeah. one option, Pete, because most of my listeners are pastors or, or faith leaders, one option I tell people is, look, just call your local marriage and family therapist Yes, and just ask them, hey, do you do genograms? And, and your pastor or group, if you're not comfortable you could bring them in or go to them. Uh, we do genograms in peer groups because everyone in the group gets to learn from the person presenting. That's great. Um, wh- one of the things that we've found is is helping people to name the family propaganda, the, the, the stuff they've inherited that they think is true, that might be true, but not always true. Yes. W- what are you looking for when you're, when someone's presenting a genogram, what are you trying to help them find? Again, I'd say, what level are we talking about? All right. So, we, so for example, this is an initial genogram, which I would say is again, I, I keep my in my lane, which mean by that I say, we're I'm a pastor who does deep transformational discipleship, and by saying that, I am I'm not other things. Yeah. Not a trauma therapist. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a spiritual director. Right. Uh, I'm not even a healing prayer ministry focus, although I believe in all those things. Yeah. Um, my goal here is to equip you for the work of the ministry, but I'm, we're going to take you into some serious discipleship to get you there. So again, if we're opening it up, I'm going to take you again. I, I would say there. So I have a leadership level introduction, which is going to be a higher level than than we're going to release in the whole church. So, for example, on one on our website is for pastors and leaders. I call that a full introductory genogram because you're going to ask a whole set of different questions. How's it affecting not just your personal life? How's it affecting your leadership? How's it affecting what you're building in the church? Uh, And you got to look at that. So that's kind of the opening salvo. And I same thing. And same thing. I think with the church uh, discipleship, EH discipleship course, we're getting people open on an appropriate level in a local church broadly. So it's not quite as deep, but it's still going to look at your family over three to four generations and, and its impact on you. But I'm going to and I'm going to make the application as that from the gospel, which is this, you've been birthed into a new family of Jesus. And so therefore, you're in this new family system and your life is learning how to live in this family as a follower of Jesus. That to me is my big thrust. And that goes for the pastor leader as well. So that means I've got to begin to do the hard work of discipleship. So say, for example, I didn't do conflict, right? I, I didn't. I shoved it under the rug. I, you know, I so so I I I avoided it at all costs, and so now here it is. I, I'm become aware of this and the chaos it produced. I didn't do feelings either. I, I only did anger. I didn't do sadness or. If you say, "What do you feel, Pete?" I said, "I feel fine." How do you feel? You know, I, I was just kind of type A, moving <laughs> ahead, typical Italian American male. Yeah. So I had to learn as a follower of Jesus to feel. Fair. I was huge, like letting myself feel. Uh, then I had to learn to actually speak clearly, honestly, and respectfully to people. 
and not avoid difficult conversations. Oh my gosh. So this was, this was now part, this would have meant for me to follow Jesus, how I did relationships, how I was a, a husband, how I was a father, how I was a, how I wasn't in a meeting. So all of a sudden it wasn't about preaching and just, you know, creating new programs or reach the community. It was about me as a hopefully differentiated individual in a healthy way, living as a member of the new family of Jesus. So that was a rebel. So I would say that's my first step is getting a pastor or leader to kind of understand, okay, this is a, this is a gigantic paradigm shift. So then I would say at that point, if you were, you know, a next level would be, we're going to sit down for a couple hours. If you're on my staff or a leader I'm developing, after you do that basic genogram, we'll sit down and then we'll talk about it. And then because with somebody, I've got some experience, I'm going to help you. Again, I'm just a mentor, pastor. I'm not even a therapist, but I'm going to say, well, what, what happened here? Your, your, your father and your mother got divorced and you said he has an, had an affair. Well, tell me more about that. Yeah. Or you say your mother meant, had mental illness. T- tell me more about that. So you start asking questions to help people probe deeper. And then you find out a whole nother level. Or I say, tell me a story that would give me a glimpse into what it was like for you to grow up in, my, in your family of origin. They may say something like, you know, I was a middle child and I was invisible. No one ever saw me. Well, that's that's a theme. But again, it's now I'm, I'm doing leadership development. I'm doing mentoring. And uh, so it affects even supervision. Uh, to me, if you're building a healthy culture, you, people you report are reporting to, there's an awareness on their part and your part. And, you, and you're going to ask them a different set of questions because you're doing emotionally healthy supervision. So you're going to ask things. I say, I think I'll give a couple examples. I one guy was, you know, on a staff and very, um, he joined our staff after I was, I was not the lead pastor, but I was still, you know, I was still around the staff team and, but he was very brilliant, but he didn't do vulnerability. He didn't do weakness. Brilliant teacher. So his supervisor asked him every week, tell me, what did you do this week to share a weakness with whom did you share it with? How did it go? It was so hard for him so hard. Uh, you know, another person, she was abused, didn't do self-care every week. What'd you do to take care of yourself today? Cause these are, these are the cutting edges of discipleship for them. Yeah. that's right. So the genogram has such massive applications to mentoring and discipling people. And then I would say it also has implications for how you view your role in the church. So can I share this little start real quickly? Oh yeah, let's go. So, for example, when I what happened to me in 1996, once I kind of understood family systems, like, okay, this whole thing fits together, then I realized that when I would deal with an individual part of the system, so say, for example, I had a guy who was he going through these rages and anger and, you know, he needed to be confronted and dealt with and pastored and all that stuff, but it would take so much time, you know. And I, in the past, I'd be like, oh, gosh, just send him to a therapist, you know. And, yeah. and, and I realized, no, 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 like, I'm going to go and get involved in this and process not just him, but the people around him. Because if I, if I can help this situation get healthy, I'm really helping the entire system. So the quality became so important to me of little things were no longer little. And so I would begin to follow up on people. That was gigantic. I used to never follow up. I was too busy. But now, and even, I'll be honest, even now, like, I mean, I, you know, if I'm running, we're running a group for pastors and leaders and, and a comment will come up from a pastor or something or 
a spouse. And Jerry and I will look at each other because we know uh, we got to follow up on that comment. Uh, we follow up because we know that all roads lead to Rome and that it affects the whole system. And so it's very, very powerful. But you got to start with yourself and then you kind of move outward to other people. Uh, really, really good, Pete. Thank you. We're, uh, we're going to link the, the website uh, with the Genogram resources in the show notes for people. I, I'm just going to testify, if you've never tried this, it, it, sound, it might sound scary to you, but it's one of those tools that takes a few hours that literally has years of implication. I first did a Genogram when I was 24. And I remember feeling invaded at first. And then once I got over that kind of invasive feeling, uh, profound, just just because your average pastor doesn't realize how much we're carrying on our shoulders, you know, the giants on our shoulders yes. you know, and how we bring them into every room and every situation. And so just the awareness of it, the, the gospel can really invade uh, generational traits. And And like you said, you're in a new family now. You know, one of the foundational concepts of family systems theory, Roberta Gilbert calls it the cornerstone concept, is differentiation of self. But I found a lot of people struggle to understand what it is. So I always like to ask a systems theorist how they define differentiation of self. Okay, so let me, let me, uh, Murray Bowen, here's his definition, and I like it. It's defining his or her own life goals and values apart from the pressure of those around them. I'll say it again, it's defining his or her own life goals apart from the pressures around you. So it's the ability to think clearly and carefully as another means besides our feelings of really knowing ourselves. So it's the ability to hold on, this is who I am and this is who I'm not. And I do so while remaining connected to you. So I'm, I'm, I'm separate from you, but uh, I stay connected to you. I don't cut you off in that process. So a high level differentiation it, it, again, Murray Bowen had a scale of zero to hundred, which I'm assuming you've shared. Yep. And uh, you know, it's it, high level differentiation is you're not enmeshing, you're not mind reading, you're able to really declare yourself uh, without alienating people, without having to cut them off, without having to make a judgment on them. I think that's part of the, that. That is the, really the problem with, I would say, in in the reason, part of the reason that this political campaign in the United States has become so politicized is a low level of differentiation in our churches. And so we end up being co-opted by a particular right or the left. And uh, really, we're called to be prophetic and separate from any political party. We belong to the kingdom of Jesus, something much higher uh, than that. And uh, so we can stay connected to the political process, but we're never uh, the same as it. We're never going to, you cannot be a Christian Democrat or Christian Republican. You're a Christian, period. And you know, there's a separateness in that. So I think um, that that ability to differentiate is so key to my marriage with Jerry, my ability to parent. I've been living with eight people during the pandemic, my three of my daughters and a husband, a, a son-in-law and two grandchildren. Wow. And uh, so we had eight of us for six months and we just actually came back to New York full time. We were going back and forth, but there was a lot of negotiating going on there. Yeah. You had basically, you, you had different families. They're adult children now, but we did really well because I think there's a high level of differentiation. Um, there was a lot of negotiating, you know, it's one kitchen and, uh, but it worked well. And if we had not done a lot of work over the years as a family, I can't imagine what those six months would have been like. When you're not differentiated, Pete, do you tend toward enmeshment? Do you tend to get wrapped up in other people's either feelings about you or their own feelings? Yeah. So, uh, I'm very, you know, mine, 
I have a I have a pattern or a tendency which goes back to it's it's one of the it's one of my limps that I carry uh, out of my family of origin. And so again, back self awareness. So I had a mother who had mental illness, severe mental illness. So my role and. Uh, in the family, uh, four children was all of our role was to take care of my mother. Yeah. So she was mentally ill, in and out of hospitals, couldn't take care of herself. She didn't parent us; we parented her. Father was absent. So this idea of overfunctioning, doing for others what they can and should do for themselves, was what I. It's all I knew. So I didn't do self care. I didn't do what do you think? What do you feel? I mean, who cares? Just shut up and do what you got to do. Yeah. And my, as far as my father was concerned, you know, go to work, get to work, do do. So when I get under a lot of stress, my temptation, uh, I would say, again, when you get triggered, when, when, there's, when we all have levels, we get that trigger us, right? The question is, how high is that level or how low is it? And so yeah. when I get triggered uh, or dysregulated, I'll go back to overfunctioning. Uh, so in case of my adult children, uh, it might be, and I have to watch myself is that, uh, yes, I'm going to help babysit for your two children. However, I'm not going to over. I, I did my parents. I'm a grandparent. That's a different role. Yeah. Okay. My parents, my children are adults. Uh, you're no longer, in a sense, my child. I don't parent you. We're peers now. I'm still your father, but we're peers. So I'm not giving you advice if you don't ask me for advice. It's inappropriate. You're your own separate family now. And uh, it's not mine to tell you what to do. And I love you. And in some sense, we're peers now. And someday you're going to be my parent as I get older. Uh, and I recognize that. So you've got your own finances, etc. all that stuff. And, and so I, how it relates to parenting is gigantic. How it relates to our marriage with Jerry. Jerry and I are such different people. Like any two people who are married are very different. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're able to every day consistently negotiate in a very mature way, priorities. You know, we're going to go away right now after this interview for uh, upstate New York, you know, and near, near the woods and a house, a little cabin on a lake we're going to rent. So we're going to work from there because Jerry loves nature. I, mean, I love nature too, but she's a real nature buff, you know, and so wants to get out of New York while the weather's still nice. Uh, great idea. Okay, so one of the things I think is helpful for people who want to practice differentiation itself is if they maybe picture you know, when there's a road closed and there's a number of signs warning you that you're about to drive off the cliff. Mm. It, it's unlikely that you just drive off the cliff. Normally, there's several signs you have to break through. What would be one of the first signs in your life where you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming less differentiated, like it's time to intervene? I, I just monitor my anxiety, the name of your book. I mean, I, when I'm feeling anxious uh, or if I'm feeling really angry. Yeah, okay. I know I'm not ready to have a conversation or go into a meeting. So I had a big meeting today, for example. I had a lot of details to it. And uh, I realized I had anxiety. Go I was aware I had anxiety going into it. And it was actually keeping me from preparing for the meeting well. So I took a nice deep breath. And I was aware why I was anxious. And uh, I prepared, even though I was anxious, like I did the right thing. I prepared for the meeting and went into it and had an agenda. And so in those cases, it's important for me to have a clear agenda. Uh, and if I'm going in for a, a conflict and I'm anxious about the conflict, I'm going to write out exactly what I'm going to say. Because usually I'll fold. In the past, especially in the past, I don't really do it anymore. But I, 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 if I'm really anxious, I'll, I'll write it down. Because I, I want to make sure I'm clear. Yeah. 
and don't fold like, oh, no, it wasn't so bad what you did. Like I'm rescuing them. Like, no, no. When you said this, it, I was hurt. Uh, and I'll pause. I'll be quiet. I won't, I won't try to rescue them. And if I'm angry, uh, I, don't, I don't engage. I don't engage until I get a hold of myself, what's going on inside of me. We actually developed a tool called the Ladder of Integrity, and it's, it's a self-reflective tool that differentiates one of the skills in the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, another one that we spent almost 20 years developing. But it, you take an issue that you're, you're, you're angry about, you're triggered about, but you don't necessarily quite what it is. And uh, you do a ladder of integrity not to go to that person. You do it for yourself to get clear. What's the value in deep beneath what I think is the presenting problem that's been violated here? And to get a hold of that so that when you go in that conversation, it's not about them. It's about you. You speak in the eye. You're not talking. You did this wrong. When you said this, I was really mad at you and you shouldn't have done this. And you're not ready for that conversation when you're speaking in the you. And so part of the tools, you, Steve, is really probably really important. I, I would really get the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course because it really is all about differentiation. Uh, and we don't, so we created a whole culture that would increase people's differentiation, listening, speaking clearly, directly, respectfully, and honestly, doing a ladder of integrity, having what we call a clean fight, not a dirty fight, doing a three to four generational genogram, how to make a complaint with a request for change as very practical skills to create a culture with boundaries. And so we disciple people in relationships and it really it's about, it's about a healthy family system. And so what we did was we tried to, which were, you know, our church has 73 nations, but we also pioneered it around the world. We were tra- at that point we were traveling in, around the world and to make sure it was transcultural. It wasn't just American. And so we got out a lot of the Americanisms and I think, it's, I think it's one of the most important things that we've produced for the long term. And I think in 15, 20 years, others will create other tools. But you need tools. People need tools beyond the theory because you say it's very uh, ephemeral. It's, it's, it's kind of foggy. How do I get at this? How do I do this thing? And, and so you need mentoring, obviously, uh, and you need some tools. And so our work, and we feel like the rest of our lives, our work is to create some tools to help people live this stuff out in the local church. It, it, it is time, I'm sorry to say, for you to face like a man the gauntlet of anxiety questions I ask every guest. Uh, a lesser man than yourself has wept, but let's see how we do. Um, just You don't have to give us an exhaustive list. Uh, what sort of leadership situations still generate anxiety in your life? Just give us one or two. Letting go of control to the next person behind okay. me. So... I did it for the local church. Now, again, it's all little levels. I did it for the local church. I'd pastored 26 years, high anxiety, four-year process. I do a lot of work for that process internally. Because again, I, I grew up in a family that was pure chaos. So because it was pure chaos, I, I need a sense of control. <laughs> like, okay, I got it, I got it. And when you're doing transitions uh, and succession, you you don't have control. So they could go, everything, handing over a small group, handing over a ministry, handing over a church. 
And so now handing over EH discipleship, uh, which I'm not doing right now, but we will in the next, you know, next four to six years, you realize this thing is really large globally and it needs to be stewarded uh, and I need to hand it over. And so I, that gives me anxiety. Uh, so I'm very aware of it, but I know it's important to do. And so I will press on and put some boundaries around myself so I don't hurt anybody uh, and make sure I get an unemotional person in the process with our board to keep it moving along. Yeah. Okay. But I know myself and to know that I got to be very careful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one guaranteed source of anxiety for any leader is making a mistake in public. I, I think that's the challenge of leadership is most of our mistakes are public and invulnerable. Would you be willing to tell us about a recent mistake you've made and what you had to do to recover from it? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a, let me just say this. I don't have a problem, you know, I, I don't have a problem making a mistake in public and acknowledging it. In fact, anything, I think it's actually good leadership. Now, if it was a public sin and I had to confess it, now that would be, I'll put that in the sin category. That would be awful. Has it not happened to me in terms of making a public confession of a sin of such a nature? I have to resign or something like that. I'm talking about that that's a level. Right. But I've, my, my life, Steve, is, Mistakes. I mean, I mean, that, to me, that's 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 it. I mean, period. So, a, a mistake I I made was about a year, year and a half ago. We were under enormous pressure to expand this ministry, emotionally discipleship, adding staff, etc. Becoming quite, you know, becoming a large nonprofit. You know, had a consultant come in, a couple of people, and da 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 da. And I kind of like, yeah, I didn't want, I didn't want to build a big organization. I, I had no desire to, but I felt like I quote had to because of the need and the demand. And to make a long story short, I finally went to our board and we presented this plan based on a minimal expansion, but it was an expansion nonetheless. And hiring some people, et cetera. And a part of me was depressed even making the presentation because a part of me didn't want to do it. And the board to a person each said, we think this is wrong. We don't think this is the right approach. Uh, you're not, you know, we don't believe EH discipleship is meant to be another Willow Creek Association. Um, and what makes EHD what it is 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 the high quality, and that you're at, yeah, slow, deep work. Yeah, and your and your your contribution, Pete, is not running an organization; it's writing and speaking. And and so he goes, I, we don't think you should hire. We have one full time employee. He goes, I, I we're going to recommend you keep it to one full time employee. You limit the organization, and you stay focused on writing, developing content, and mentoring. And so that was a mistake. And I had to, you know, say sorry to the people I kind of led that we were going to go down a different road. <laughs> Fortunately, we hadn't hired anybody, but that was, that was a recent mistake. And I felt kind of chastened and, uh, by it. And, uh, but, uh, again, it was a classic example of, I wasn't listening deeply enough to my own struggle and sadness inside that I really didn't, I was, didn't want to do it. I was so happy after that meeting. I felt like a burden was off my back. And the interesting thing about it, Steve, that the work has continued to flourish, but it's not because we've got it all under control. You know, it's just, and so interesting, you know, thank God we didn't have a big staff when COVID-19 hit, you know, it didn't, didn't impact us. And yeah, because we run a, a slim ship here. Oh, so good. Um, I find with a lot of faith leaders, we experience a gap between what we believe about God and what we encounter from God. Do you struggle with any gap? Like for me, the gap is, uh, I believe in God's love, but I struggle to experience it for myself. That was a gap up until 2015. I was living with too much. Would there be a gap in, in your belief and experience? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's many gaps I'm not even aware of, Steve, okay? So let's just think, what am I aware of? I would say it's the gap of letting go 
mean, I'm now 64 years old now. I feel great, love what I'm doing. Aging confronts one with one's limits. So I am recognizing, I mean, I mean so my reality is limits, great. You preach, you, you, pre- you preach and teach on limits, absolutely. However, okay, so thinking of transition of the organization, thinking of the fact of, uh, you know, I probably got one more great book in me or two more books, that's it. You know, I... Uh, I, I, I'd love to do so many things. I'm not going to happen. So my ability to let go and be detached, I totally believe it theologically. I got it, but am I, I'm living into it, but I'm not living it the way I'd like to live it. I, I, you know, I was meditating my time with Jesus today was Philippians four and, you know, the God of peace. And I just meditated on a God is a God of God lives in peace. He is peace. And so I want to be like him. And Paul says, you know, he speaks of that for the Philippians, you know, about, you know, praying, giving thanks and just being as I want to be as a totally grateful person who's let go and just my gen, I'm just gentle and safe. And uh, as I grow older, you know, I, uh, I can be anxious and controlling. So again, there's levels. I, I I've not died yet. I, I'll get one shot at that. I, I want to die. Well, I want to let go the ultimate letting go really well. Yeah. you know, for Christ. But I want to live into my final years really well, too. Yeah. And not hold on to things, not be fearful about security and money and things like that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. The final question. Um, John talks about perfect love casting out fear. Uh, I love to hear from my guests when in your life you feel most fully and completely loved. I would say I do experience that in silence and stillness with God. There's n- no place I'd rather be. I've often wondered I should have been a monk, you know, I could have been a monk. At the same time, being with Jerry, one of our practices is skin to skin. And uh, I'd say that that is the, and I believe it biblically as well, if you're married, that when naked in the arms of your spouse, there is nothing closer to the echo of heaven on earth than being one in lovemaking with your spouse safely, emotionally, spiritually, physically, to what will be when we see Jesus face to face and we are embraced by him fully. Uh, And Revelation gives us this picture of intercourse, of oneness uh, at the end of history as an image of our oneness with Jesus. So I, I, for me, that's the place where I probably, you know, have, don't feel you know, any fears. And, and I, it's just, you know, you're getting older is such a blessing. Um, I had these moments of fears, uh, and I think do not fear is probably one of the most spoken words of the Bible. I, I never could count how many there are. I've tried to. If you ever figure it out, Steve, let me know. Do not fear or fear not. Because it's such an important command, isn't it? Just do not fear, fear not. It's such a repeated theme of Scripture. At the same time, I love being older because I realize how little there is to be afraid of. And it really, so many things just don't matter. It's just like money, it doesn't. You really realize when you get older, who cares? It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money, a little money. You don't even need it because... There's no need. It's just, you, spend, you spend your whole life thinking about retirement when you get older, and it really doesn't matter. You know, what matters is God and Him and life with Him. So I pray I could live into do not fear really well as I grow older. Pete, I, I started this podcast not quite two years ago just to learn from people. You are one of the top of the list. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on and sharing your heart. Steve, thank you. Love being with you. I look forward to sharing this on social media and talking to you further and reading your book. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.